When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. This is Nicholas Webb, author of The Innovation Mandate, the growth secrets of the best organizations in the world. And you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Nicholas Webb, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? I'm doing amazing. It's great hearing from you. Well, what's going on in your quarantine world? Well, you know, uh, this is weird, right? I'm used to living on airplanes and jumping on stages and doing stuff and traveling around. And now I'm in, uh, uh, in uh, you know, arrest, basically, home arrest. So it's, it's, it's weird, but it's, it's been a nice break, actually. But not with the ankle bracelet this time, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's cool. So where are you? So right now I'm in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. You know, I, I uh, also work part-time as a uh, adjunct professor and chief innovation officer for a medical school, Western University of Health Sciences in Los Angeles. So typically I, I commute back and forth to the college, but uh, I literally have not left Arizona now for months. So I, uh, you know, we're all closed down at the university temporarily. So yeah, located in, I think it's going to be 105 degrees today here. So yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And uh you were, uh, you've been on the Marketing Book Podcast twice, and I know this embarrasses you, but it's two of my favorite books. Uh, you were on episode 92 wow. in October of 2016 for What Customers Crave, which is a book. At lo- You're like some of the other authors that I've been taking on trips with me because I included in a presentation that I, that I often give where people say, what are some of the big ideas from all those hundreds of books? And then you were more recently on episode 243 in September of 2019 for the innovation mandate. But for folks that uh, have not listened to those episodes, if you would remind folks who you are and what you do. Yeah. So I have a weird life, right? I, I, I started out my career four decades ago. God, I'm getting old. And, uh, and you're like a year older than me. So he's like, (laughs) I know, uh, you know, I started out my career as a medical technologist, uh, inventing medical devices. And, uh, 
Uh, one thing led to another, and I, I, I began to start to look at systems and tools and methods and processes for organizations to do innovation right and to, to do customer experience right and strategy right. And I just fell in love with the machinery that is uh, an enterprise. And, and from that, uh, over the last uh, several decades, I'm the you know, speaker, consultant uh, guy, uh, author guy, I guess I should say. And I, it's been really fun. I've learned from some of the greatest teachers in the world. I've, I've had a chance to do a lot of really, really deep research on, on what the best organizations are doing and what their secret sauce is. And that's what I try to share with my readers. Okay. Well, you're not doing a very good job here because you're holding back a lot. You have over 40 patents, <laughs> the U.S. <laughs> Patent and Trademark Office. And uh, one of the interesting bits of uh, Nick Webb uh, trivia that I'm just so fascinated with, your first cousin of James Webb, who was a uh, Virginia a senator. He was Secretary of the Navy. He uh, Vietnam vet, awarded the um, Navy Cross, Purple Heart. Um, and, uh, also a really good author. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's had several New York times, bestselling novels, uh, fields of fire. One of my favorites is born fighting. He talks mm -hmm. about my dad throughout the book and really cool guy. Really, really cool guy. You're just amazing author for sure. And, uh, what customers crave. I, I have, I have, I have some details here. Uh, it was featured as Mashable's top 50 marketing books to read in 2017. So I continue to recommend it because I get uh, requests from listeners saying, you know, talk to me. Are there some books where we could actually start to think about putting together a better customer experience, engineering a better customer experience? And I always include that and uh, a couple others that are uh, that are quite good. So did you have plans that changed suddenly in the last two months? or two months ago? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, right off the bat, 70 booking events uh, went away. So, you know, million dollars <laughs> speaking and training. Yeah. A million dollars yeah. in speaking and training. Yeah. Ah, you know, the heck, it's a right? rounding error to some <laughs> people. Yeah. What um, now a million, uh, 70, now that was between two months ago and how far ahead in the future were they canceling things? They were all the way to early spring. So, you know, I, I've already, there would have been 30 or 40 that I would have done uh, in the time that I've been <clears throat> sequestered. But, you know, look, the universe has a plan. I've always got multiple streams of revenue. I still have a very busy consulting practice. And, and so, I, you know, honestly, it's, it's one of those things where I've been trying to fire speaking for a long time. I, I just spend too much time on the road away from my family, although they've, been, you know, they've traveled the world with me. Uh, it was, it was time. So, I mean, I, I'm cool with it. I'll still do some speaking, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it wound up being fortuitous. Do you have any ideas of what the future of, uh, speaking is in terms of compared to your previous life, which changed two months ago? Yeah, actually I did a video on, on, on really what this looks like. I think that first of all, um, a virtual keynote presentation is a unicorn. There's no such thing. I mean, you cannot, deliver a keynote presentation in the two dimensionality that is a, a computer screen. You just, you can't do it. And uh, there, there are a lot of uh, speakers out there that are clamoring. They're putting green screens in their house and doing all this stuff to try to deliver uh, digital keynotes. And it's just not a thing. It just isn't. 
Um, start and, calling and, them keynotes yeah, then, I guess. Start calling them keynotes, right? It's, it's, it's training. Uh, you know, I did one this morning for a problem so, uh, for a business solver. And uh, they had booked me originally live. Then I wound up uh, doing uh, their three events uh, digitally. But, you know, you have to completely re-architect uh, your, your presentation. You have to, to really do it uh, very, very differently. And it's not as good. I mean, people, you know, when I can tell jokes, I can work the stage, I can have fun, I can be passionate, go big. You just really can't do that in a digital format. So I think where we're going to head is we, once we get to a solid therapeutic and, and, uh, and ultimately a vaccine, which is probably a, you know, a good 12 to 18 months away, then you can start seeing some sort of uh, live events come back. I, my sense is that they will be waived events, meaning that there'll be events that uh, if you're going to bring in, you know, 600 people, you break them up into three waves of 200 and then you make those waves a little bit more uh, persona specific so that you can add some additional value by breaking them up. Uh, you know, in other words, if you're doing an organizational talk on <clears throat> innovation and you've got HR people, marketing people, and, and uh, operations people, you can break them up into their job titles and deliver higher degrees of customization in those various waves. So waves will be a big part of it. You know, one of the things that we're going to start hearing a lot of is HD, human density, right? The, the uh, how many people we can get into a cube. And, uh, and that number will be, uh, will determine how many people you can get into a conference. And, and so, yeah, I think, I think ultimately micro events, digital events, hybrid events, waved events, these are going to be the future for the next, uh, uh, let's call it 16 months. And then after that, I do believe we'll have a solid vaccine. We'll have therapeutics on board, and and uh, and we'll start to see some degree of reassemblance. I'm calling this the C19 economy. You know, if I hear another person tell me the new normal or the post-COVID economy, there there is no post-COVID economy. This isn't the new normal. It's abnormal, and it's permanently abnormal. And it's not about post anything because that suggests that things are going to come back to normal, and they're not. And, and it's fortuitous that I wrote the innovation mandate because this whole book was about, you know, uh, you know, be ready for the fact that we are the, it, it getting ready to hit some major, major changes. Now, these changes were historical economic changes and some of the things that were happening with consumerization and things like that. But now with C-19, now the need to really innovate is really, really gotten big. In other words, when everything is different, you need to create newness to square up with differentness. And that's another word for innovation. And that's what's exciting about this. This will be a time of amazing innovation. Yes, there's a lot to uh, discuss there. Uh, We're talking 12 to 18 months for a vaccine, but isn't that actually faster than they normally come up with these things? Yeah, you know, if you look at the the typical clinical trials where they go through animal studies and then they go into phase one and phase two, you know, uh, uh, clinical trials, they, you know, basically what they want to make sure of is that the vaccine that's supposed to save your bacon isn't going to kill you, right? And so um, there is ways to collapse those timelines because historically those those, uh, clinical protocols have been somewhat conservative. And that's really what they're doing here. I think they're going to get the same kind of safety criterion uh, compartmentalized. And in fact, fast tracking uh, around uh, devices has been something that's been around for a, for a while now. And so we're going to see, I think, a, a faster, more agile, but, but still safe uh, clinical trial process through the FDA for sure. You mentioned CUBE. That was a term I'm not familiar with uh, about the density of, of how many people are in a particular space. 
Yeah, I think what we're going to we're going to start seeing is because you have to look at viral load, right? So if you look into a room, people are exhaling in the room and theoretically they're producing aerosol and that aerosol is where uh the bad bug lives. And so <clears throat> it's not just, you know, how many people that go into a physical space, it's how high the ceiling is, how much at, what is the atmospheric cube of an enclosed space? And then how do we calculate, you know, the potential viral load within that within those uh that uh that area to be able to identify human density. Uh, yeah. Would that then be an opportunity for more outdoor events? We're already seeing that. In fact, uh, you know, we, I just got a, a speaking request for an outdoor event that, uh, that a company had that was uh, going to be in Colorado that was going to be inside. And, and now they have found the big field and they're going to have a big inflatable, uh, a screen and they're going to make it cool and they're, they're going to socially distance. And, uh, but, uh, but it has kind of this uh, concert in the park kind of jam to it. So I think we're going to see a lot of cool innovations when it comes to, uh, to, to live events. So yeah, outside is much better, you know, in California and a lot of other uh, States, uh, you know, if you want to go to a restaurant, you go to the restaurant outside, the insides are not yet open. So um, it, it's, it's definitely a lot better when you have a big open atmosphere. It occurs to me that, there will be a surge in alfresco dining throughout the country or throughout the world. <laughs> of course. <laughs> wow. That, there's that innovation you're talking about. No. Well, when do you think you will get on an airplane again? Well, I'm in the middle of filming a documentary uh, that's uh, being filmed in Perth, Australia, Israel, and Dublin, Ireland. So uh, anytime now. I think that we're looking right now at some flights starting in in uh, July. Mm. So. Um, yeah, I you know I, I mean uh, I, life goes on, right? And I I I I think that uh, uh, you know I'm I'm at low risk. I'm a I'm an epidemiology uh, nerd. I love to look at the the various data sets. And you know, really, if you look at the 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 risk, it does have a lot to do with uh, tight enclosed spaces and uh, airplanes. Uh, but also, you know, your if you have comorbidity or polymorbidity, and most of these uh, the, the the people who have died from from COVID, and I'm not an epidemiologist or an expert in this regard, but just from looking at the data as a layperson, you know, it does seem that I'm at pretty low risk. But you know, look, I take I, I probably driving in Arizona is probably a far greater risk of me meeting the maker than uh than COVID at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh you haven't abandoned your health. You you've tried to uh watch your health while you're uh in quarantine here. Yeah, actually I've lost about nine pounds and uh you know it's kind of like you know you see these guys that get uh, incarcerated in prison and then they get all uh, cut up and everything. <laughs> right. That's what I did. Right. I, 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 just, I got weights and I, you know, so I'm, I'm in the best shape of my life. And, and so, yeah, it's, uh, I wasn't going to go the other direction, but you know, in, in the world that I'm in, I'm, I've really not had a real office for four decades. I've been at a real job for four decades. So working from home is something I've always done. I mean, when I'm not on an airplane or at the university, I'm, I'm working from home. So the guys that go to prison and get all cut up, it just makes me want to ask, I mean, do you now have a like a quarantine tattoo, like a prison tattoo? I know. That's a great idea. I'll see if my wife wants to, to go there with me. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Lee, you mean, let's not push that one too hard. So is there anything that's really surprised you more than anything else uh, in the last two months? I, I think that what has been surprising to me is it, this is a philosophical thing. The C-19 economy is a head game. And from working with clients and being very involved with many people, 
who are in triage mode right now that are furloughing employees that are trying to recapture um, their their whatever it was they had before. What surprises me is this sort of uh, sense of a legacy bias. I, I'm seeing leaders and really, really committed to believing that they're going to come back and turn on the light switch and get back to business. And that's shocking to me because in every one of these cases where I'm involved as a management consultant for the organization, there's no reason in the world, there's no shred of data suggests that anything that they're going to do is even going to be reasonably close. And so I think what surprises me is how many people are in legacy denial, believing that that the what what they're coming back to isn't demonstrably different than what than what they're going to be doing moving forward. Hmm. I wonder if that's a human nature uh, desire to want to go back to the what they think of the normal. What are some of the changes that you think are going to be permanent that seem to, people seem to be in denial about? Well, you know that's a great question because when you take a look again using the example of people who have uh, unfortunately died from COVID. Um, the people that have died, per, the preponderance population of the people who have died from COVID already were dying. Mm-hmm. They had morbidity, they had comorbidity or polymorbidity, meaning that they had they were hypertensive, they were diabetic, they were overweight, they had some other problem, right? Or they were just immunocompromised by virtue of age. So what's interesting, the reason I like to, to mention that is that the organizations that are dying are suffering from enterprise polymorbidity. In other words, they were broken before this whole thing happened, but by virtue of an incredibly healthy economy and a certain amount of forward momentum, these organizations were able to put another step forward and another step forward. And so I think that the the, the big reality here for everybody is, is that the strategy that you had going into this is not the strategy that you're going to be going into moving forward. It's going to be very, very, very different. And, and, uh, and I think that a big part of that is really finally getting to the point that you realize that if everything is different and the stuff that you have right now isn't relevant, then what you have to do is to create relevancy. So again, if everything is different, you need to create newness and newness is nothing more than innovation. So the, the folks that have ignored innovation, new ways to deliver value to customers, new ways to improve the operation of the enterprise, these are all new things. So I think that rule number one, when you get back, realize that your current strategy needs a 360 quick triage. You have to look at everything that you're doing and apply the realities of the C-19 economy to your new strategy. I think secondly, you have to make innovation a core competency in your enterprise. You've got to create new systems that are leaner. You've got to be more agile. You have to be more strategic. You have to be able to do things with less. And that requires innovation. And and innovation is not, you know, a unicorn. It's a real thing that works in a very predictable way. And I think thirdly, not surprisingly, customer experience. It is a bloodbath now for customers, right? When the economy shrinks, you've got You've got essentially a similarity to the same amount of people that, that were swinging before the C-19 that are fighting for this uh, for a finite customer. They are going to demand higher degrees of value because there are more people fighting over them. And so they want to see, they want to see better, transparent, conspicuous value across their various touch points. So that's it. Right? it. It makes me think of all these people that have been so frustrated with certain industries or companies and they're thinking like, okay, now... <laughs> I've got mm-hmm. you where I want you, and you're right. going to start innovating and treating me better. 
Nick, there was a book on the show a year or two ago called The um, Creative Curve by Alan Gannett. And it was all about creativity. And he talked about how creativity, and, and he went back hundreds and hundreds of years and showed that it's really more of a process, a system. It's not some lightning in a bottle. Right. And <laughs> guess which book reminded me of that? It was <laughs> Innovation Mandate. Right. and. there's a system to it. And the other thing that I got out of your book uh, that that still sticks with me is understanding the myths or the, these concepts people have of innovation that are just not true. And that innovation is similarly a system. You, you have to do that. It's not something like um, you go, go suddenly get innovative. I just, I, I have this vision in my head, uh, of executives, uh, many that I've worked for over the years, <laughs> slamming their fists on the table, saying a variety of things like, I want more business or we want to grow or you need to go innovate. And a book comes along like yours <laughs> where I say, God, I wish I'd had this so I could have thrown it back at the boss or no, not thrown it, but you know, maybe said, okay, boss, I got you. I understand. You know, there's actually, um, there's a little bit more we have to, we have to do. I was wondering if you could talk briefly about what some of the big myths of innovation are. Well, I think that, you know, the creativity myth is one that, uh, that comes to mind. I think a lot of people believe that innovation is the same as creativity. And the, the problem with creativity is, is that we humans tend to create really crappy things often. Right. So to give you an example, we uh, follow. Hey, I need three- to get personal here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we've cre- we, we invent about 3,000 patented technologies a week. And out of those 3,000 patents, only about 1% of those will ever reach any successful commercialization. So I think a lot of people believe that the biggest problem with the organization is that they're not moving forward because they're not creative enough. I think that generally speaking, if you take a look at that organization, they're creating stuff all the time. It's just like bad stuff, right? <laughs> so um, that is one of the biggest myths is that creativity is necessarily good. In fact, creativity is an expense item and not a revenue opportunity if it's not thoughtful. So are there companies, I, excuse me, are there companies that uh, have like a, a key performance indicator of how many patents are we filing? Well, that's a great question. So there are there are many different ways to measure uh, cre- uh, to measure innovation success, and unfortunately, uh, filing patents is one of them. And in fact, I was recently at an autumn conference, the Association for University Technology Managers, and uh, an executive chief innovation officer from a very prestigious university. I won't mention the university because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but it was a very prestigious university came up and says, Hey, we've got 48,000 patents. I'm like, wow, that's hard to even imagine. Well, what percentage do you commercialize? Well, I, you know, we, you know, wait, I, I gotta go. <laughs> Somebody's calling my wife. Calling you. Right. You know, it's like, yeah. I'm not, yeah. ask right. him how many Twitter followers he has and Facebook likes. Cause those are probably about as valuable. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there you go. And, and so the, the problem is, is that that's a really lot. The, the best way to measure the success of innovation is to, is to measure it by virtue of customer and enterprise impact. And in fact, in researching the innovation mandate, I looked at, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of expert definitions of the word innovation. And, and the problem when I would look at these definitions is like, I couldn't find any actionable 
there, there was no call to action. There was nothing that actually was measurable in these definitions. And what I've come to realize is that there is a definition. It took me 40 years to, to, to come up with it. But innovation is the process of creating novel value that serves your enterprise and your customer. That's it. Uh, innovation means it has to be new. And doesn't mean it has to be new to the universe. It just has to be new to your organization. You can take a, a manufacturing process and, and apply it to your business processes. Uh, you can uh, take something from another industry and apply it in your industry. That's new. If it provides value to the enterprise and value to your customer, then it's innovative. Now, the, the problem with innovation is that it's, it, it has a, a, a range of intensity. There is four basic phases of, uh, of innovation. There is um, incremental innovation. And a lot of people disrespect this whole concept of incremental innovation. Like, eh, it's better, but it's just slightly better. But over a period of time, incremental innovation is an important part of your organization's innovation work. Uh, the next one is kind of landmark. It's like, yeah, that's a completely new way of doing things. And, you know, uh, I, and it adds value. And that's something that, uh, that organizations are always looking for. Uh, the third one is breakthrough innovation. And these are things that have huge value to the organization, like just absolute breakthrough value. And then there is disruptive innovation. And those are innovations that actually displace uh, old business models or old product technologies that are so good that they, they may, in fact, completely re-innovate the way in which you do your business. Right, uh, Smile Direct Club is a, is a disruptive innovation because it destroys the orthodontist. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, why put the orthodontist for $7,000 when you can get, uh, uh, you know, uh, clear aligners uh, in the mail and do the exact same thing for half the money and you never have to go to the dentist's office uh, and, and they're, and they're just on fire. Right. So, the, but, 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 but look at those innovations as a stock portfolio, right? You want diversity, you want high, high risk, higher yield, you want low risk, lower yield and, and everything in between. So looking at innovation as a, as a portfolio is really the right way to do it. Well, and you also mentioned the word value. And it seemed like that's missed a lot. Like, is this of value? Yeah, right. We use a thing called the triangular assessment model. And you look, you have to look at everything from, is there a need? Is there a problem? And does it take advantage of an opportunity? So that's on the top of this pyramid. And then you have to ask yourself, well, can I build it at a price where I can deliver uh, on that need problem or opportunity? And then you have to take a look at the market uh, part of the triangle and say, okay, is there, uh, is it already being adequately uh, delivered to, to customers in, in a, in a pr principally the same way, or do I really provide differentiated value? So you have to take a look at the need, the build, and the and the sell um, in a very balanced way to find out if it does in fact have the value that you're looking for. Yeah, I remember the triangle from your book, and I remember thinking, wait a minute, that's too simple, but yet <laughs> it right. seemed to be missed a lot. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of organizations use things called stage gate methodologies, which is really a risk centric model, which basically says that, I mean, the model basically says, can we lose our job if we do this? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so the answer is, yeah, maybe. So let's not do it. And, and literally we have all of these models for evaluating ideas. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, if, if I were to use those models to go to the store and get a quart of milk, I, you know, and, and you take a look at the statistics of the, the uh, Department of Transportation of my risk of getting in a car accident or being exposed to COVID or actually getting the milk and drinking it and dying of arteriosclerotic heart disease from the, from the fat in the milk, right? So you can look at everything uh, from a risk-centric point of view and then decide you don't want to do it. 
And that's not, you know, in, in to be innovative and to get those breakthrough and those disruptive innovations, you got to take some risk and, and you can control the risk through, through proper uh, light and airy analysis. But you, at the same time, you can't really be risk centric. Nick, let me ask you a really crazy question. When you go out, you, so you've missed out on a, nearly a million dollars of, <laughs> of speaking and training uh, in the next while, but you know, it's, it's, everything's going to come back. What are your favorite things to talk about when you're doing a, a keynote, maybe more than just the individual training? Well, you know, I, uh, I speak in on future trends, right? I speak on the future of business and technology, and I do a, I do a lot of work in healthcare. Uh, in fact, I have a healthcare book coming out called The Healthcare Mandate by McGraw-Hill in September, and then I'm in the middle of filming a documentary called Fixing Healthcare. So um, th- those are fun for me. I, I you know, I, I've done so much research in, in, I like broken things and healthcare is really broken. Um, and so that is a lot of fun for me. I, I'm doing something that's really crazy. Uh, and in fact, I'm just now getting ready to launch it. Uh, and it's a book called Heyday, uh, which will also be a documentary film, very much like The Secret. But it, it's a collection of lessons that I've learned from everybody from Chief Nozolog, a Native American Indian chief, and uh, uh, psychiatrists, metaphysicians, uh, Scotland Yard detectives, uh, uh, you know, Al, the Uber driver. I mean, all these incredible people sort of all brought to me this sort of same interesting message. And uh, I've had a real blast putting this together. I'm about four, four or five chapters away from finishing the book. And, um, and I think that is what I'm going to really spend a lot of my time focusing on in the future, because this is the kind of stuff that could really have some great impact in people's lives. I recall now, after we recorded the interview about the innovation mandate, you mentioned the, the book, Heyday. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the whole thing started uh, a few years back. I was flying uh, to Miami and I was sitting next to a guy in first class who had just sold a bunch of his possessions to buy a first class ticket to get to Miami for his uh, high school reunion. And, uh, you know, it's about a four hour flight that I was flying from uh, Sacramento at the time. And, and um, he went on to tell me uh, about uh, the fact that he was a, a football quarterback in, in, uh, in high school and he had dated the, you know, one of the most popular girls and cheerleader, most popular girl in school. And he had this 57 Chevy that, uh, you know, made him really the cool kid. And, so he was uh, sort of the Nick Webb of high school. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, with a mullet, I'm sure, right? Um, but it was, it was interesting to hear this story because for four hours, he, you know, he, he talked about his heyday, you know, and, and the definition of his heyday is really kind of the high point of your life. And, and then he went on, sadly, to start describing, you know, the life after high school and how it continued to decline and decline and decline. And he spent most of his life talking about when he didn't suck, right? When he was good and when people liked him and when he was, you know, living on purpose. And it just made me realize that, you know, a lot of people live in that, um, in that space of, uh, of talking retrospectively about when things were good rather than making that something about what they do every single day of their life. And and then I started sort of thinking about other stories and other lessons that had come to me about this concept of heyday. And uh, before you knew it, I, in fact, on my birthday uh, last year, July 1st, I sat down in Sedona, Arizona, and I've never done this before. I literally wrote the chapters, outlines for every chapter 
the book introduction and the book ending. I mean, I've never, it's taken, I've never done that. It just came to me. And, and it's just one of those books that uh, I, I'm going to spend a lot of time uh, sharing with people because there are some lessons from these teachers that I think will help a lot of people out. Mm, interesting. And Nick Webb, I can't resist. It's it just, you're talking about this guy who, you know, was really uh, popular and he had it going on. And all I could think of was, the movie Napoleon Dynamite and Uncle Rico, right? <laughs> so maybe you could use that in one of your one of your keynotes. Can you say more about this Netflix show that we can all be uh, watching? I guess maybe sometime next year. Yeah the uh, the website is uh, launching on Wednesday of next week. It's the healthcarecure.com is the website, and uh, the 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 name of the documentary film is Fixing Healthcare. And I was speaking at an event a year ago in Dublin, Ireland. And it was for this really large crowd of very affluent people. It was put on by Davy, a very prestigious financial management organization. And basically, it was the it was the who's who of uh, of Ireland in this room. And uh, the talk was on the future of healthcare. And I talked specifically about uh, things that will likely happen in in Ireland based on their models and so on. And uh, and it was very well received. And at the end of my of my talk, this guy comes running up to me and. Uh, you know, there was a few stage handlers that kind of <laughs> wasn't sure if she was, you know, a stalker or something, right? And so, you know, we 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 went back and said it his rounder in the during the break, and we talked. And his name was Dr. Ray Power, and uh, and and Ray uh, said, Nick, you you nailed it. It's it's about the doctor patient re- relationship. It's about recapturing the covenancy of that amazing relationship. It's going to be the the genesis for starting healthcare and. You know, one thing led to another. Uh, I flew him out and and uh, and uh, gave him a tour of the university and my innovation lab there, and had him meet my team at the innovation center. And we just became really, really good friends. He came out here to to, to Scottsdale, and we rode horseback in the desert, in the Sonoran Desert, and uh, while he's singing Irish songs. Oh, wow! <laughs> but, uh, yeah, That's great. yeah, and he's a primary care doctor, but he also owns what is equivalent to Kaiser Permanente in Ireland. So he's a very affluent, very smart, uh, really interesting guy. And uh, anyway, I, you know, he, we became real close friends, and and uh, we talk regularly. And I mentioned to him that you know what, Ray, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a uh, I'm gonna do a, a documentary on fixing healthcare. I I want to change the conversation. And here's the good news: is it's going to lose a lot of money because I'm not going to focus on anything other than to try to move this mission forward, to get people to demand health and not healthcare, to demand the time and the data and the resources that they need to be able to get to a healthy state. And uh, so I mentioned it to him in an email, actually. And um, my, you know, my phone rings at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. He goes, Nick, buddy, it's Ray, you know. I'm taking this, I'm taking this journey with you, brother, you know. So one thing led to another, you know, we became partners on this film. Uh, he's the executive director and the clinical uh, uh, advisor. We brought in uh, Journeyman uh, Films, and then from there we hired a motion picture company in uh, in Perth and a motion picture company in Dublin and one in Ireland. I mean, one in uh, Israel. And uh, now we have this massive production underway, and it is just extremely exciting. We're gonna we're gonna change lives. We're gonna change the conversation. This 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 movie is gonna is gonna make an impact, and I'm just so proud of what we're doing with this. Wow. And, and the name of the movie is going to be what? Fixing Healthcare. Fixing Healthcare. Wow. That's, yeah. that's going to be hard to forget. Well, yeah. <laughs> are there like, what are, what are the ways that healthcare is the most broken? Is it, 
is it tied to what you just said in terms of not seeking health, but instead uh, seeking to fix broken health? Well, if you think about the trajectory of healthcare, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, we did first aid, right? If somebody broke a leg, they'd get a stick and a loincloth and they would try to mend a, a broken leg. And then uh, the next phase of healthcare was uh, was infectious disease, right? Where we started to, to really develop advanced scientific knowledge where we were able to understand, you know, the, 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 the biology of a human to where we invented uh, vaccines and, and antibiotics. And it was, it was amazing because we saved so many lives during, the, during this, uh, this infectious disease phase of healthcare. And then we were emboldened with being able to fix stuff, right? We started mm-hmm. with fixing stuff and then we started to fix more stuff. And then we moved into modern medicine. And during that period of time, we increased the cost of healthcare five times. And yet today in America, we're the sickest population of any, any industrialized country in the world. And so then uh, we moved from modern medicine into hyper-interventional because we created economic models where drug companies and device companies, hospitals, doctors, clinicians, everybody in the healthcare ecosystem in this industrial complex, right? All of them made money to do things to you, the patient. None of them were rewarded. In fact, they were punished if they were to try to use something to make you, to keep, to keep you healthy and to get you to an optimal state of health. So all of our focus is on intervening. It's reactive. Mm. And we that's where we need to change. We, we need to give doctors different economic models to incentivize them and the entire healthcare ecosystem machinery to reward prevention and wellness. As Steve Jobs said, pretty much on his deathbed, it said, if you don't make food your medicine, you'll spend the rest of your life making medicine your food, right? We, we, are, mm. we're in a, we have created this monster. And I've been part of it. I started my career as a medical device uh, innovator. I invented one of the world's smallest medical implants, one of the first wearable technologies. And I was incentivized to do stuff to people. That was what was laid out to me every day. And, you know, I dutifully complied. I think that we need to change the conversation now because we, we think about this statistic, 70% of every dime that's spent in healthcare today, 70% is based on self-inflicted chronic disease. In other words, people eating their way, drinking their way, smoking their way, something in their way, setting their way, according to Dr. Oz, Mm -hmm. into chronic disease. There is no way that's sustainable. When you combine that with the silver tsunami of of, uh, right now, a third of Americans are over 65 and demanding a lot more healthcare, it's just not financially stable. So we have to move with the conversation that we want to change is let's reestablish that special relationship between the doctor and the patient. And then let's also enable it with wearable technologies, with new economic models by educating the physician of the future in a different way. And, and, and let's leverage all of these incredible things to, to reimagine the way in which we help, help people stay healthy rather than intervene. Well, Nick, do you think that what we're going through right now might actually accelerate some of the changes that need to happen in healthcare? Oh, it already has. For the longest time, healthcare has rejected telemedicine. Uh, and telemedicine is not a subtractive interaction. It's an additive uh, interaction. Uh, you know, I had a, I had a family uh, relative of mine call me over the weekend and said, hey, Nick, do you know any doctors I could talk to right now? Because uh, all of our all of our clinics are closed and the hospital is closed and I need to, to get medicine for a bladder infection. 
right? So, you know, I t- send them over to Doctor on Demand. They go on Doctor on Demand. Four minutes, they're talking to a licensed doctor. You know, five minutes later, they're, they have their medicine sitting at the pharmacy waiting for them. That's not subtractive. That's, you know, as we talked about in, in What Customers Crave, it's all about reducing friction. And before, people were resistant to this. And now, in what some people are now calling the Zoom economy, we're now seeing that the idea of having digital consults through a smartphone or through a computer desktop is, makes a lot of sense. And we're going to do some other things to add to that. We're going to add adjuncts so that when you get your medical insurance, you'll have a multifunctional USB device that is an otoscope, an ophthalmoscope, pulse oximetry. It, it, it has all kinds of different diagnostic functions. They'll cost about $15. And when you sign up for your insurance, you get one. And then when you need to talk to the doctor, you plug it in. And the doctor now has advanced diagnostic tools that historically they may not even have that level of advanced technology in their office. Wow. Yeah. That's just amazing. Yeah. The other thing that's really cool, in fact, we filed several patents on this, is that we're going to leverage the webcam and the microphone in the camera to be able to assist in the diagnosis. We're, We're able to do what's called facial AI. With facial AI, we can just look at the picture of you on the other side of that camera and we can determine your mood state. And we're now getting to the point where we can determine lucidity, uh, stress levels, all kinds of interesting things. Uh, I just filed three patents on a range of technologies that look at head movement AI, where we're taking a look at incremental movements uh, of the head that can potentially screen for Alzheimer's and all kinds of uh, neuropathology. Mm-hmm. We're also going to use the microphone and use the microphone for what's called voice AI, where we can determine a lot about your state of mind based on inflection, modulation, pitch, tonality, volume, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, no, this is a good example, but we have already accelerated into this next era and it's exciting. So people are going to be able to tell if I'm more lucid, man, I'm in trouble. I know, right? <laughs> well, Nick, yeah. is in, uh, you seem really, really busy and or f- extremely efficient. Is there anything you're doing to keep yourself entertained? Well, you know, one of the things that was great for moving from California to Arizona is, uh, you know, in California, everything is a felony. But here in Arizona, <laughs> you can do whatever the hell you want, right? So I, you know, we bought a side-by-side and, uh, you know, I can pull out of my, because I actually live all the way up in Cave Creek. So I can now pull out of my- What's a side-by-side? It's a, you know, it's a UTV. They're, they're kind of like Jeeps, essentially. I have a four-seater Polaris. Okay. Uh, so it's a uh, Polaris uh, 1000 velocity turbo and it's this, you know, rocket ship. And I can, you know, those you can't legally drive on the street in California. Here in Arizona, you can register them. So I can pull out of my driveway and I can go up into the Tonto National Forest and get lost for hours and hours and just see, you know, Gila monsters and uh, javelina and beautiful cactus and incredible streams and rivers and wild horses and it's, it's really been fun. So yeah, no, a, a lot of that. I'm uh, This week, every week, I'm giving myself a challenge. This week, my 14-year-old daughter and I decided that we're going to learn to suture. I have no idea why, but we bought this. And uh, you can get them on Amazon for $20 and you can learn how to suture. To a, to a live human? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, they give you this silicone fake tissue slab with all kinds of different... Uh, anomalies that you can suture and you know we've learned the uninterrupted and the running and all kinds of different stitches so my 14 year old daughter and i can stitch you up in an emergency and we actually got my daughter's really good at it but wow. uh, yeah just dopey things like that learning new i'm also learning uh, a terminal node con- these new uh, uh qrp controllers for i hate to admit this because this makes me sound like a real ham geek i mean a, re- uh, a 
nerd geek, but I, I also have been a ham radio operator for years. And there's some new technology now that allows you to set up your own digital stations and, and there's some new QRP stuff out there. So, you know, I'm a tinker and, and, uh, and, uh, and a technologist. So I've always got some slab of technology in front of me. Um, wow. you know, we also built in a full video studio, not, not like a, not a green screen on the wall, but we, we brought in a TriCaster. Uh, we brought in, you know, 4k cameras, we brought in everything. So I literally, literally have a television station in my, in my home office now. It's, it's a whole room and, uh, it's really something else. So it's, it's nice to be able to doing, uh, we're doing vodcast for the, uh, for the, uh, documentary and I'm doing a lot of educational programs for clients and, you know, they, I'm able to do it inside of a virtual studio, which is just incredible stuff. Yeah. Well, how best can people keep up with what is going on with you? So on the speaking side, which I don't think I do anymore, <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, simply nickweb.com with two Bs. My consulting site is goleaderlogic.com. And uh, the upcoming uh, documentary film is located on uh, thehealthcarecure.com. Again, I don't think the site is live until next Friday, but uh, it'll have all the, the teasers and all the information about the film. Okay, terrific. We'll make sure to include links to all that we can on this episode's blog post at marketingbookcocktails.com. <laughs> I love that. So, Nick Webb, I really appreciate you joining us uh, on this uh, special episode of the Marketing Book Podcast, Authors in Quarantine, Getting Cocktails, and I hope that you and your family stay well and uh, busy and optimistic. Same here. I really appreciate you thinking of me. I love the beard, by the way. It's really working for you. Very uh, sophisticated. You actually look smarter, if that's possible. I mean, the bow tie used to be a big, uh, you know, like I've never been smart enough to wear a bow tie. Like that's like a <laughs> thing you can't, you got to really got some, but the beard is really working for you. Doug. Oh, so you got to keep the beard. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, because I was worried I was starting to look like Tom Hanks in the <laughs> yeah, right. way. But, you know, maybe I can get a haircut. But so, yeah, so maybe the beard and the bow tie. Yeah, now you're talking. Yeah, it's like turbocharged. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll take this up with Mrs. Burdett. So, yeah, well, very right. good, Nick. I, I appreciate it. Great catching up with you. And uh, we will uh, hopefully uh, reconnect on a future episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. Sounds good. Thanks so much. 